Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Turning to our third quarter earnings, 
Today, we're reporting net income of $1.08 per share. We delivered strong growth in our book value and return on equity. Our teams also did a lot of work to set up, to set us up for future growth, and I'm pleased with the progress in a number of key areas this quarter. First, in originations. Our residential sales and underwriting team followed up a strong Q2 with an even better Q3. The processes and strategies we have put in place to drive growth are functioning the way we intended. For instance, working with our broker partners to become more efficient at processing applications and using the capability of our new CRM system to increase broker engagements. On the commercial side, originations picked up over Q2 and we're adding good business in attractive segments of the market. While we have started to benefit from a return to pre-pandemic underwriting guidelines during the quarter, we delivered this growth without compromising the prudent underwriting standards that we are known for. Our healthy credit experience this quarter and for the year to date reflects the underwriting discipline. Not only are our credit losses minimal, but the percentage of non-performing loans as a share of gross loans has declined to below pre-pandemic levels. Further, the continuing upward revision to economic outlook led to an additional release of our credit allowance. Brad will discuss more specifics on this portion of his presentation. Turning to our funding side, customer deposits for our Oaken channel grew to $4.3 billion, and I'm happy to announce that our Oaken branch launched the Oaken app in early October for both iOS and Android devices. The launch follows extensive testing and feedback in one of our agile working groups. It offers flexibility, intuitive navigation, and an excellent user experience, as well as the ability for our customers, customers to review their accounts with us 24-7. Our launch of the OCAP app aligns with our strategy of serving customers the way they want to be served. We're working to increase engagement with the app across all our open customers. Over time, we'll be adding more features to enable a broader range of transaction options. I look forward to sharing our progress with you all. Beyond open, we continue to move forward with our funding diversification plan. We closed our third RMDS transaction in October. The attractive terms make this a competitive option for funding our growth. Earlier this week, we participated in a bank-sponsored securitization conduit. Together, these instruments added an additional $675 million of liquidity to our funding mix. We will continue to expand these and other funding sources in the future. Having more options ensure we're a reliable source for growth and competitive pricing. Our Ignite program is moving forward. We are focused on the development and testing required to support the next wave of upgrades that will focus on the efficiency of our deposit operations. Our team have been hard at work to give us the tools and resources we need to build an organization that is ready to meet the challenges of the future. Now, looking at our plans for opening up here at home, I'm happy to say we have begun to welcome back people into our office. We took the step of requiring proof of vaccination for returning employees. We want our employees and our customers to feel comfortable 
when they are dealing with people crumble, and they were and we are taking steps to make them safe. At this stage, nearly all employees are back in the office one to two days per week as we shape what is the right mix of hybrid working model will look like for us. It is great to see the faces of the home team and your conversations fill the office environment. People are excited to be together again and learning to thrive in a hybrid meeting and work. It's no surprise that in addition to being a great place to work, home was named to best workplaces in financial services and insurance for 2021. I want to say a word about our capital plan, which Brad will discuss in more detail later on. We are pleased with the announcement by OSCE updating regulatory expectations around capital return. Accordingly, we have announced plans for a 300 million substantial issuer bid for SIB. This is consistent with our earlier communication that we would move swiftly to achieve our target CEC1 ratio. We understand one of our most important responsibilities to our shareholders is effective management of capital. And we recognize that the excess capital we're holding is a drag on ROE and that the profitability we're able to deliver. The SIB is the first step towards achieving a ROE that reflects the true profitability of this great, great business we're in. Looking ahead, we still believe the conditions are in place for a healthy housing market. Our broker partners report robust demand in our major markets, with sale gains in all categories of homes, including renewed strength in condominium sales. Employment numbers are increasing, so people are going back to work. And the, the data on deposit balances show that consumers have a lot of savings. We continue to follow the Bank of Canada on the timing and magnitude of rate increases and the potential effects on the market. However, we are not yet seeing cause for concern about credit. Our economic indicators are strong, and the B20 stress test provides some affordability cushion against higher rates. In addition, the shorter duration of alternative mortgage book provides an up-to-date view on borrowers' ability to pay. We will continue to drive value for our open customers and take advantage of opportunities to diversify our funding. And we will work to improve our return on equity for shareholders by optimizing our capital structure. Now, I would like to turn it over to Brad for financial review. Thank you, Yusri, and good morning, everyone. This segment of the presentation begins on slide six. Net income for the quarter was $54.8 million, a decrease of 6.3% compared with the $58.5 million in Q3 2020. Adjusted net income was $56 million. Q3 net income per share was $1.08 for the quarter compared with $1.12 in Q3 2020. Adjusted net income per share was a dollar and ten cents after adjustments related to our night program. Book value increased by 16.4% year over year to $36.40 per share and return on equity was 12.2% for the quarter or 12.5% on an adjusted basis. Once again, we generated double digit return on equity while holding substantial levels of excess CEC1 capital. Slide 7 shows the sources of the change in earnings per share compared with Q3 2020. EPS was down by $0.04, cents or 3.6%. Last year's earnings had the benefit of a higher reversal of credit provisions 
partially offset by increases in EPS as a result of the lower number of shares. Average shares outstanding were lower due to normal court issuer bids during the year. Our net interest margin was 2.58% for the quarter compared with 2.61% in Q2 and 2.51% one year ago. The year-over-year increase in NIM is mainly due to lower funding costs and contributed 3 cents to the change in net income. Our expectation based on our current outlook for interest rates, asset mix and competition with other lenders is that there may be modest volatility in our net interest margin for the balance of 2021. Pre-tax pre-provision net income was consistent with Q3 2020. On a sequential basis, adjusted EPS was down from $1.44 to $1.10, primarily due to lower reversals of provisions and higher non-interest expenses. Those expenses were up primarily from an increase in employee compensation, including employee incentives and severance costs. Our efficiency ratio is 47.3%, similar to one year ago. Slide 8 shows originations and loans outstanding in our single-family residential portfolio. Originations grew by 34% over the same quarter last year, with particular strength in our classic portfolio. Classic single-family on-balance sheet as of the end of Q3 grew 4% year-over-year. Originations in our commercial business declined in the third quarter compared with Q3 of 2020. Q3 of 2020 was an unusually active quarter for us due to favorable competitive dynamics in place at that time. Originations picked up over Q2 with emphasis on land and construction rather than restaurants and hotels. On a year-over-year basis, commercial loans on balance sheet at the end of the quarter decreased by 10%, resulting from payouts of securitized products as well as loans to retail stores and stores and apartments in particular. Our open channel experienced good inflows this quarter and now makes up 31% for our total funding. The percentage of open deposits held in savings rather than GICs increased to 23.5% from 18% as depositors are less inclined to lock in their funds in a period where rates may rise. Our overall open balance has increased by 82 million or 10% year over year. For the year to date, inflows through our open channel have accounted for all of our deposit growth as we've used a variety of other funding options to provide liquidity. As Eustry said, subsequent to the end of the quarter, we went live on our digital banking app. Everyone here at home is excited about the potential of this new platform. Following the end of the quarter, we announced the successful completion of our second RMBS offering of 2021 at an effective yield of 1.528% on the Class A notes. We are pleased that the pricing spread over Government of Canada bonds has narrowed with each issuance. Subject to market conditions, we will continue to be a programmatic issuer of RMBS. We also participate in a bank-sponsored securitization conduit. Slide 11 shows the details of our credit provisioning this quarter. We booked a reversal of $3.8 million compared with a reversal of $7 million in Q3 2020. The inputs to our third-party economic models continue to trend upwards, particularly the data on employment. The $3.8 million reversal is split roughly evenly between our Stage 1, 2, and Stage 3 loans. Looking at lines of business, the most significant contributor to the provision reversal 
with our commercial portfolio, driven by both changes in risk parameters and actual repayments in this portfolio. For the year-to-date, provision reversals have totaled $34.7 million compared with provisions of $41.8 million in 2020. Commercial loans have accounted for 62% of all year-to-date reversals of credit provisions. As a percentage of gross loans shown on slide 12, reversals of credit provisions were 9 basis points for the quarter on an annualized basis and 26 basis points for the year-to-date. Net write-offs for the year were $0.2 million across all lines of business for the quarter, or approximately one basis point. For the year-to-date, net write-offs totaled $0.4 million, or less than one basis point of gross loans. For the first three quarters of 2020, net write-offs were $26.2 million, or 20 basis points of gross loans, of which the majority was attributable to our retail consumer lending portfolio. The inputs to our economic models improved their levels of unemployment, as shown on slide 13, while the outlook for housing prices showed minor decreases across all scenarios. The total probability weighted loan loss allowance was 35.7 million at the end of the quarter, while the allowance using just the base case declined from Q2 to 27.7 million. The probability weighted allowance was approximately 8 million higher than the allowance would have been using just the base case. The next slide shows a breakdown of our $35.7 million allowance for credit losses as of the end of Q3. The chart on the right shows that 79% of our loan loss allowance is attributable to our Stage 1 and 2 loans. The allowance has decreased in all our lending categories due to general improvements in FOI in addition to repayments and releases or reclassification of loans previously categorized as Stage 3. Non-performing loans have declined significantly, as shown on slide 15. Net non-performing loans now make up only 15 basis points of our total gross loans. Meanwhile, our allowance coverage has increased to 22.1% of total Stage 3 loans. Slide 15 shows our TEP1 capital ratio of 22.57% at the end of the quarter, an increase of 30 basis points from the end of Q2. For the year-to-date, we have spent approximately $70 million to buy back over 2.1 million shares at an average price of $32.73. This represents a discount of 10% to our quarter-end book value. Because we were able to use cash at the holding company level, year-to-date NCIG activity has had no impact on our regulatory capital. As Yusri mentioned, we plan to achieve a CEQ1 ratio within our stated target range of 14 to 15% by the end of next year. Today's announcement of our $300 million substantial ratio bid marks a significant first step towards achieving our target CEQ1 ratio. And now, I will turn the call back to Yusri for closing remarks. Well, thank you, Brad. Now I'll ask Chris to pose the questions. Thank you. At this time, I'll just remind everyone, if you would like to ask a question, please press star 1 on your telephone keypad. And our first question is from SCN Ricard with BMO Capital Markets. Your line is open. Thank you and good morning. Congrats good morning. On, congrats on the quarter and, and the return of capital. Um, on, on this topic, in, in prior conference calls, we talked about expectations for your capital 
um, to the clients at target levels within an 18 to 24 month period. Now, the, the, the new plan of reaching the target, uh, you know, 14 to 15 percent to one ratio by the end of 2022 is is, uh, is even better. So, so what else is on your roadmap to return more capital by the end of 2022 in, in addition to the uh, substantial issue bid? Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Yeah, thanks, thanks again. We've been consistent in focusing on share repurchases and mechanisms to um, repurchase shares. We think uh, that uh, our valuation is, uh, where, where we view it, uh, attractive for us to repurchase shares. So that's been our focus. Uh, we do plan on renewing our NCIB. And further to our previous commentary, we would contemplate the resumption of a quarterly dividend after we've completed those uh, share repurchase activities. So you're right, we have accelerated the time frame and since we talked uh, last August. So it's just a matter of utilizing those uh, facilities. So as I said, we're, we're going to do the We've announced the 300 million SIV, which we expect to close by the end of Q4, and we will renew our NCIB that, that expires on uh, January 21st, and then we will review once the SIV has uh, closed, we'll then review uh, our overall plan and the mix. So one of the key determinants is will be uh, what happens with the SIV, and we'll be reporting back. In with our Q4 results on, on what we're going to do next in terms of capital return. Okay, great. And as it relates to funding, the, you know, this is ID, it has about $300 million in cash, $400 million in securities. How do you plan to balance, on, on one hand, funding the SID and on the other, maintaining uh, appropriate liquidity levels? Well, we're extremely confident in our ability to manage our liquidity. One of the things that we've been doing uh, and have demonstrated over previous quarters is our access to the uh, deposit boards. But in addition to that, uh, we just recently completed our third RMBS transaction. We have uh, just recently started to participate in a bank-sponsored uh um, securitization conduit. We also have the capability to utilize whole loan sales, securitization, and frankly, we only need a modest increase on a daily basis on our uh, deposit funding uh, to be able to uh, work through the funding requirements for this SID. So we're extremely confident in being able to manage our liquidity and, and you know, post-quarter, once we were able to solidify our plans, uh, we, we participated in uh, the uh, 
bank securitization conduit as well as the uh, RMBS transaction, which collectively brought in uh, over uh, $500 million. Okay, and, and looking into 2022, uh, how confident are you in a potential credit rating upgrade, and, and how would that help home if you're funding from, uh, you know, even even more funding sources? I think it would be very helpful. I, I, I you know, our, our view is, is uh, uh, that uh, we should uh, receive a rating, but uh, upgrade, but that's, uh, that's beyond our control other than the continued performance and how we can demonstrate that to the relevant agencies. But clearly, uh, an upgrade would open up the deposit market on a, on a competitive basis, and that would probably be the first thing that we would turn to with, uh, once we reach investment grade from both our credit rating agencies. So that would be extremely helpful, but uh, it is not incorporated in any of our uh, liquidity plans. And as I said earlier, we're highly confident that we will continue to be a programmatic issuer of RMDF and that uh, we will continue to work in opening other lines and perhaps be able to participate in further um, uh, securitization activities. Great. Thank you for your comments. You're welcome. Our next question is from Nigel D'Souza with Veritas Investment Research. Your line is open. Uh, thank you. Good morning. Uh, I first wanted to ask um, a granular question on your PCL reversals this quarter. And when I look at the loan categories, specifically single-family Residential mortgages, I see that there was a uh, reversal in your state three uh, loans there. And I wanted to maybe tackle this a different way. Um, you know, first trying to understand what caused these loans to migrate into state three to begin with. And I asked that given a backdrop of deferrals and substantial uh, fiscal support programs. Could you share with us what the impairment trigger uh, was in the first place to classify these loans as uh, state three? Well, typically, uh, it would be missed, uh, missed payments and, and some behavior. Uh, they would be over 90 days would generally automatically put them into, uh, stage, or sorry, 60 days would automatically put them into stage three. And so as we went through, I, our, our current, um, delinquency rate is better than it was pre-pandemic. And we've just seen a decline in those those stage threes as they're either brought current or um, otherwise uh, dealt with by our collections team. Got it. From what I understand, the, the stage three reversals uh, are reflective of workouts. And, uh, you know, when these borrowers resume their payments, are they resuming the payments at the original contracted uh, mortgage rate, or are they resuming the payments at the current uh, mortgage rate? It depends on the situation. We we may do a restructuring of the loan, and then that becomes a refinance and gets re-underwritten. Okay, so and if it's product, sorry, if it's product today, we would continue as is. 
Okay, so the reason I ask that is if we do have uh, an environment of rising interest rates, does that at all, uh, you know, impact the uh, the potential for phase three reversal that we're currently seeing in uh, single-family residential? Well, I, I, a lot of that movement in and out of, of phase three is typically related to their their payment or bringing it current. And okay, we're comfortable. Sorry, just, sorry, just to expand on that in, in anticipation of further comments. So uh, we're, we're comfortable with affordability because, as, as you may recall, um, with the introduction of the stress test in 2018, all the mortgages are stressed to a, a 2% increase. So that that's something that uh, gives us a lot of comfort. Okay, that's, that's really helpful. And if I could uh, end on a broader question. Uh, you know, from what I understand, if, if interest rates move up and mortgage rates are, are, are turning higher, that benefits the, the neoprime space. You have probably higher retention rates and maybe in the migration from prime to, uh, to neoprime. Is it, is it possible to quantify that benefit in, in any sense in terms of incremental mortgage growth? I mean, how much uh, incremental mortgage growth or market share do you think you could gain for the first 100 basis points increase in interest rates and the second 100 basis points increase uh, in interest rates? Well, there's probably two things that are going to happen. Um, one is that uh, you need to keep in mind in the in the in the near prime space, is there's typically a lag in mortgage rates moving with deposit rates, so it doesn't happen immediately. We saw some of that in um, 2018 when the rates rose. We um, it, it took some time uh, for the rate increases to take effect across the market, and uh, we do think that we could uh, get more volumes of the, uh, as you said, more we probably get more deals as they can't qualify at and major and uh, major banks. And you're right, the book would be stickier. Okay, appreciate that, caller. Thank you. You're welcome. Our next question is from Jamie Coyne with NBF. Everyone is open. Yeah, thanks. Uh, first question, just um, on the uh, on the credit side, on the stage two loans, noticing an increase in single family stage two loans, uh, increasing quarter to quarter. Um, is there uh, is there anything there that you can that you can draw uh, out from that movement? Yeah, I I, I think it's really just ordinary movement as we go through. I don't think there's anything that you would take away that's talking about the overall deterioration of the portfolio again. Okay. Um, with respect to the bank sponsored securitization conduit, um, like how do the how do the loans that you're placing into that conduit compare to the RMBS loans and uh, and also compare to the broader portfolio? They're, they're, they're probably closer to, uh, they have similar covenant quality. They're, um, they are classic loans that we're putting in there. So I, I'd say it's pretty similar to the RBS. And would that be uh, similar or higher or either credit quality or loan quality compared to the power portfolio? Similar. Okay. Um, 
In terms of the credit recoveries today and looking at the uh, the ACL versus the base case scenario, eight million, what's um, what's a reasonable expectation to uh, to think about in terms of uh, how much that of that can still be uh, be released or over time? Uh, our, our view right now is referring to the residential portfolio is that. Aside from stage migration, uh, we're probably not going to see, uh, and subject to any improvements in, in significant improvements in the forward-looking information, we're probably not going to see any significant uh, recoveries in the single-family ETL. The uh, portfolio growth as we continue to originate uh, more loans is going to presumably generate as opposed to reversals. And as you saw the, in the results, commercial is um, a little more volatile. They have uh, the loans are typically a much larger size. So that, that's something that uh, will uh, move uh, separately from our overall expectation related to uh, our residential portfolio and the other two portfolios that I think are relatively stable. So Another way of summarizing it is we, we do think that as residential grows, we'll probably be looking provisions instead of recovery, and commercial depends on, on uh, volume and staging. Okay, and uh, last one for me, just uh, in terms of the uh, non-securitized net interest margin declining for a couple of quarters in a row here. Um, so high historically, but declining for a couple of quarters in a row. What are you, what are you seeing on the... Uh, on the portfolio evolution uh, early here in, uh, in Q4, is this, uh, is this a trend that looks like it could continue uh, as, uh, as mortgages continue to renew at slightly lower rates and the deposit pricing starts to back up a little bit? Is this something you should expect uh, for a couple of quarters here at least? Yes, is the short answer, James. So it, it's a competitive market. We were having strong covenants. Uh, the overall impact, you know, obviously we're, we're striving, but it, it's competitive. And one thing that's happening is uh, we're really pleased with the originations. And as we build uh, uh, our, uh, our our prime book up, we're going to want to be keeping more of our, our goal is to keep more of these mortgages on our balance sheet so that um, any marginal declines in them will be more than made up for increases in, in volume. Okay. And uh, on that same theme, um, we've uh, you know, heard one of your competitors talk about uh, maybe leaving uh, interest rates uh, a little bit lower through the initial uh, rate hike cycle. Is this, uh, is this something you've given thought to uh, to maintain a little bit more uh, spread as the, as the deposit costs increase in general. Maybe are you talking about the, the mortgage rates or deposit rates? No, deposit rates. So holding deposit rates uh, stable while prime rates and uh, and the Bank of Canada is hiking interest rates in that environment. Is that something you? Given thought to as a uh, as a strategy to uh, maintain margin. Ability. Jamie, two speaker. Uh, the main driver is competitive forces. 
you, you can you can want to not change your rates to to widen spread, but competitive forces uh, may force you to move because we compete uh, with a lot of different financial institutions on the deposit side as we do on the lender side. So it, it's you, you, you can edit it as best you can, but you got to get the volumes you're looking for. Okay, great. Thank you very much. Thank you. Our next question is from Graham Writing with TU Securities. The line is open. Hi. Uh, <coughs> hi, good morning. Um, <coughs> any, any details on the timeline? <coughs> Excuse me. The timeline and the process for this uh, substantial issue of it? Yeah, well, we, we announced um, today, Graham, as, as you know, and uh, we're intending to close by the end of Q4, and that's probably as specific as we're going to be as we work through a uh, seasoning process to determine the price range uh, related to the offer. <clears throat> okay, so <clears throat> similar to your last uh, SIDs, you know, you'll come out with the Dutch, you know, terms for Dutch. Dutch auction um, at some point in the, yeah. in the near future, I guess. Yeah, sorry, Graham. <laughs> I got a bit ahead of myself there. Um, yes. Okay. <clears throat> um, jumping to, you made a comment just volatility around the end. Potentially, I think it was more of a near term comment, but what was driving that? Was this reflection of competition or, or what we, I, I missed your message there? It is certainly competition on, uh, on on the asset side as well as on the liability side. So uh, we have uh, we're, we're uh, very much focused on scoring our book for origination, and so to a certain extent, we are we are being uh, perhaps more competitive on rates than we have been previously, and particularly uh, through the pandemic. So. I think I refer back to the remarks that you should made on our last call in terms of uh, we went, we had more conservative underwriting criteria through the pandemic. We we relaxed it. Sorry, not relaxed. We went back to our old stringent underwriting standards, and we're also extending some of our uh, geographies where we want to uh, look at increasing our our exposure. So we're very much focused on on growth while. Um, you know, being very prudent with our NIM. Understood. What would some of those new geographies be that you targeted? Well, it's more an expansion of uh, some of the uh, postal codes. We get very granular with where we're focused, as well as we may now be uh, working with uh, higher loan values, and we adapt our pricing towards that. So uh, we have a great underwriting team who takes a look, and uh, most of it will still be focused in our Ontario and D.C. markets. Okay. Um, as, you, um, as you're exiting 2022, and hopefully your capital is the right size into the targeted 14 to 15% CET loan ratio, what, still, uh, what sort of ROE are you targeting once you're exiting 2022 and you're right size to your, uh, your uh, capital level? Yeah, so we'll, um, we'll be um, mid-teens mid is our target. 
Okay. Perfect. That's it for me. Thank you. Again, if you'd like to ask a question, please press star then one on your telephone keypad. It appears that we have no further questions at this time. I'll turn the call over to Yusuri Posada for any closing remarks. Thank you, Chris. We've got a lot accomplished this quarter with progress in our lending business, our funding, our technology, and our capital strategy. I thank the team at home for their efforts and look forward to seeing them all in person again. As a reminder, we have an investor day coming up on the 23rd of November. You all have received an invitation, and for those who didn't, please contact Investor Relations. I hope that any of you will join us either in person or virtually. Thank you for your interest in Home Capital, and I wish you all a good day and a good weekend. Ladies and gentlemen, this concludes today's conference call. Thank you for participating. You may now disconnect. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time.